Welcome to the Spirit Anointing the Word, the podcast of Highland Church, Jamaica, New York, with Pastor Subash Cherian. We're so glad to have you with us today, and we're excited about God's Word because it gives us strength and hope for each and every day. Let's listen as Pastor Subash shares this powerful message. Father, we're so grateful that we can gather again this morning. And together, O oh God, we lift up your name, the most awesome, holy, sovereign God. <coughs> our praise and our worship and our thanks comes to you in the mighty, precious name of Jesus Christ. And we lift up your name, O oh God, and thank you for the manifold blessing, for prayers answered, for the grace that you have visited us with and for the many occasions that we have been blessed. Thank you so much. Reach out and touch your people today. Minister to them, precious ones that are here in person and those that are watching. Lord, that the needs may be met because of Jesus Christ. You so pleased to send the one that comes from your very bosom. And in that mighty name, O oh God, we pray there would be release of grace, and healing, deliverance, salvation, and the needs of your people would be met because you are gracious, Father. You are loving and you are merciful. All glory and honor be to you in Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's people said, Amen and Amen. Give the Lord a clap offering. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Last Sunday, I was speaking about the throne and the one who sits on the throne from the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and verse 2. I want to move on into what would be the continuation and particularly praise to God the Father and praise to God the Son and literally talking about in the words of Revelation, chapter 5, to the Lamb that was slain. Now I want you to understand that it's very important that we understand the theology behind, behind this, as well as the theocentric behind it, together with the combination of the transcendental, transcendental God, as well as the imminent, and we when we come to fuse them together, and recognizing the throne on the one who sits God Almighty, that is our Father, and the Lamb in the midst, and the one that sits at the right hand of the Father. I want to just bring about this in bringing chapter 4, and remember that John, the beloved, was thrown and cast into the island of Patmos, and he was there, and it was on the Lord's day that he was taken up, and by spirit, the revelation that he saw was amazing. And so you find that in chapter 1 and verse 4, the letters, actually his prime audience were the seven churches. And that's what you find. The first thing I wanted to realize is verse 1 tells you is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ from God the Father. And then talking about the people that he addresses to are the seven churches. Thirdly, I wanted to realize from verse 12 all the, all the way verse to 16 is what you find the amazing attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ in his regal kingly royalty. Something that's so surpassing that John the Beloved, who knows the Lord Jesus Christ closer than any man in the flesh, his cousin in the flesh, literally, and yet the one that he leaned close to his bosom when he saw this, uh, the splendor of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in his royalty, chapter 1 and verse 17 simply says, he fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon him, saying, Fear not, I am the first, and I am the last. <coughs> so you find in this very passage the marvelous way in which we are revealing the greatness and the power of this great one. When you continue on to chapter 4 and continuing to basically uh, think about what takes place, one of the things we find is out of the throne proceed lightnings and thunders, and we saw about everything surrounding the throne uh, in a way to reflect the greatness of the one who sits. Uh, we're taught about the many stones that reflect his glory without describing the one that's seated on the throne. And there is the lightnings and the thunder. There is the voices of praise, and, and it's highly magnified. 
and then the rainbow. All of this is very powerful. And what you find in verse 4 is around the throne were 24 elders, and I want you to understand they were having white clothes that speaks about priests, and they were having crowns that speaks about the king. And so obviously the Lord has made us priests and kings from Revelation chapter 1, 6, Revelation chapter 5, 10, and you're going to find later on in Revelation chapter 7 as well. It gives you a picture of these 24 could be representative of mankind saved in the Old Testament, most likely the patriarchs, and then in the New Testament, most likely the 12 apostles. But that becomes a representative of uh, humanity that are saved, sanctified, and taken to heaven. What you find in verse 6 and 7 is the four living creatures, uh, the new, uh, the KJV talks about it at beast, but it's far superior than anything that we could recognize. Uh, they have almost eyes all around, knows everything that takes place. But more than that, they are the ones that lead the praise. The moment they say, holy, 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 to 24 elders fall down, and then there's a symphony of praise, and it reaches a crescendo. When you go into uh, chapter 9, 10, 11, and 12, what you're finding is such an awesome praise, and this is to the Father. In fact, there are seven praises from chapter 4, chapters 5, chapter 7, and just five of them alone are before the throne. Throne is mentioned 14 times, 12 times in this passage talking about God's throne. What you find is an amazing array of colors and lightnings and sounds, but what is more important than that is the praise and the worship. So when you turn to verse uh, 11 of chapter 4, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and praise, for Thou hast created all things. So you find in this, uh, verse 9, these beasts uh, or these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne forever and forever. Much later you're going to find the same worship is uh, given to the Lamb of God. And so in verse 10 to 24, elders fell down at the very mention of the word uh, uh, praise begins. And then there's a symphony of praise in verse 11, thou art worthy and ye alone. And what we find is to receive glory and honor, and this belongs to him, that is given to him. The reason is he's the creator. And this is very important for us to realize we didn't come out of something out there. It is simply that we are created, and he's the creator. So in chapter 4 and verse 11, we're talking about the creator, the sustainer, the Lord God Almighty, God our Father. This is very important. Now when you go to chapter 5, there are a couple of things that John continues in this chapter. The first thing he says in chapter one, 5 and verse 1, that he sees on the throne the right hand of him that sits on the throne and the book. So we're talked about the throne again, and the one who sits and his right hand. We'll come to that a moment later. But you see on his right hand what is known as a scroll with seven seals. It is a sealed scroll that tells the future, that talks about eschatology, more so pertaining to the kingdom, more so pertaining to each one of us and all that lies there. This is very powerful when you think about the movement from chapter 6 and how it is unfolded. But what you find in verse 2 is talking about a great angel. Now that is uh, very important in terms of strength, in terms of intelligence, in terms of greatness, and specifically mentioned a great, and he had a loud voice proclaiming, proclaiming uh, who shall break the, who's worthy to take the scroll. What you find in chapter 10 and verse 3, there's again mention of a mighty angel and his voice is like a roaring of a lion. Uh, these are very important. But coming back to chapter 5 and verse 2, I want you to understand, he says, who is worthy? And the next verse goes on to say, there was no one worthy. And just to pause and to think, that this mighty angel with all his strength, with all his power, with everything that is so mighty and powerful and great, 
he was not able to and not worthy to take the scroll. There wasn't anybody, not David, not Moses, not Elijah, nor any of the great prophets, nor the apostles. There was simply no one to uh, able to open the book. So what was the effect on John the Beloved? You find in the next verse, in verse 4, I wept because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereupon. So obviously he wanted to know the purpose why he was here. The unfolding of the purpose has to do with the scroll, which is in the right hand of the one that sits upon the throne. And unfortunately, no one is worthy to hold that or to open the scroll. It is sealed seven times. But then in verse 5, one of the elders uh, said unto him, Weep not for the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so old here, here is the introduction of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to realize there's an array of description, almost the best words I could say is maybe high-dimensional in various forms, the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Beloved saw Jesus Christ closest in the flesh. But yet you find in, when we read earlier in chapter 1, verse 12 all the way to verse 16, he's arrayed in regality. I mean, there is fire in his shoes, there is... Uh, hair that is white and glowing, his voice is so powerful, it's a sharp two-edged sword, it's way beyond description. So this is talking about the high royalty. Much later in chapter 19, he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. But here, in verse 5, he's introduced as the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is a messianic prophecy that comes all the way from Genesis chapter 49, and verse 9 and 10, talking about the, uh, the lion that would basically come in and possess the nations out of the tribe of Judah. So the reference to tribe of Judah, again, in ver earlier chapter 49 and verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So talking about the kingly role. So now coming back to chapter 5 and verse uh, 5, we're told this is what he's talking about. He says he's the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Again, a messianic role here because in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, he is, comes on the root and the branch of Jesse. And then towards uh, in verse 10, again, out of the root and the branch of Jesse. Both Zechariah and Jeremiah talks about the branch, the root, and talks about the branch, Jeremiah says, God himself. And so he's introduced not simply as the root and the branch, but he is God. We don't have time to pursue that now. But now, having said that, when you go to verse 6, is it the lion? But what John sees is beyond the lion. He sees in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. So I did talk about the things that were close to the throne of God. I talked about the four uh, living creatures that basically around, and then around them were the 24 with 24 seats, and then around were all of the arrays of the splendor, and of course the glassy sea and the rainbow and all that I talked about. But one very important thing I wanted to understand, in the midst of the throne was the lamb that was slain. Now, we're not talking about the lion now. We're not talking about the king now. All of this are expression of the wonderful dimension that we get of the Lord Jesus Christ. John saw him in the flesh and now he sees him as a king. Now he sees him as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. But all of a sudden, when he looked in the midst, look, he says, and I find in the midst. So right in the midst, again, you have a marvelous scene of what is called... The, the lamb that was slain, and there are seven spirits of God, the seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. So right close to the throne, you are going to find a marvelous sense of the, the Son of God and the Holy Spirit. So I will be talking about the, uh, the theocentric part of the worship a part of the circular move of the around the throne, and it's very important. And in the midst of it, I want you to understand the Trinitarian uh, doctrine, even though the words Trinity is not there, you're going to find this in the songs and the expression 
there's a lot of theological words not particularly mentioned in the Bible, but it is only because what it contributes and what it attributes to. And so you're going to find highest on the level is the one that sits on the throne and that he's being worshipped. But I want you to realize when you go on to chapter 5, in the same way there is worship due to what is expressed as the lamb that was slain. I want you to look at it. It says, the throne of the four beasts and the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. What you find is from a lion, you're going to find to the root of, of uh, David, now what he sees is a lamb that was slain. Excuse me, is it a lion or is it a lamb? It's two dimension or three dimension or whatever dimensions you want to call. Only in heaven we realize at a glance we see the king of kings. We see the Lord of lords. We see the majestic glory that is given to the Lord. And the Father has lifted him up, up that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And yet, lo and behold, he's the lion. And then he's the lamb. So obviously, there's a theology about lion lamb, and that is amazing. But I want you also to know the lamb who is also the lion. And so it is very important for us to realize that. So when you talk about the lamb, you're realizing that this is the fullest expression found in the old and the new. The Old Testament, Hebrews knew a lot about lamb because that was the reason when the blood was shed all the way from Genesis and through the laws of Moses, uh, the blood of the lamb was very important, particularly with regard to the Passover. And this is uh, so important in terms of what they have to do. And that is carried over to the New Testament. And we come to realize that uh, Jesus is, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, is the Passover, is, the real, is all of the... A reality and is the fulfillment of what would be the Passover. Now, if you keep looking at this, you're going to find what was amazing is this lamb is standing. So it says in chapter 5 and verse 6, a lamb stood. And I want you to realize it's a beautiful picture of one who is dead, but he's not dead and finished. He died on the third day he rose and he stands. And that is a very important expression of the one who stands at the center and who stands before the throne room, before the Almighty Father. He stands as an intercessor, he stands as the king, but his role is standing. When you look at Stephen in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, sees uh, the one that sits on the throne and Jesus standing simply means he is triumphant, he is ruling, he is not cowed down, brought down, and knocked down. He literally is the reigning. What you find, go ahead, give the Lord a clap offering. The way it's expressed is the lamb who is the lion has, is like the lamb lion and yet is meek. And God, he could have come in and sold out everything as a lion. He's a conqueror. But no, he comes down and the victory is won not because he comes as a lion, as the king of kings and the lord of lords, but he humbles himself and becomes the most harmless of creation. To the point, humbled himself, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, all the way to 9 tells us, gave up his everything and comes into and subjugated like all of us, but in, into a third-class citizen and subjugated by the Romans. And he was uh, spat upon, he was ridiculed, he went through all the humiliation. As a lamb, he uttered not a word, Isaiah chapter 53 says. And yet, when you look at the lamb, he is standing in heaven. Uh, that is, basically, he's finished his work. And of course, at the high priest, he's seated at the right hand, but he's also standing triumphant. And this is very important, particularly when you look at uh, uh, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 16. Literally, people say, fall down to the mountain because hills because they're frightened of God and the wrath of the Lamb. So there's a sense of being frightened and knowing that who he is. He is the Lamb, but he is as strong as the Lion. Again, chapter 17 and verse 14 of the book of Revelation says they made war against the Lamb, but the Lamb prevailed against them. And so it tells you this Lamb is a lion.
lion is a lamb uh, is not only lion lamb theological terms but also a lion that that's a lamb that is also a lion very powerful that uh, they shall make war that is the antichrist the beast and all of that against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is the lord of lords the king of kings and they that are with him are called the chosen and faithful very powerful now when you look down in chapter 5 and verse 6 not simply a lion a, a lamb but a lamb that was slain now you get the picture of this one who basically came down as a lamb and going all the way back to genesis chapter 3 you find an animal had to shed his blood to cover uh, the sins of uh, the first man adam and eve when they sinned but also covering them because the glory had fallen and they need to be clothed and so it's picture of salvation of an animal that is shed uh, blood has been shed and that you find it being done uh, in a wonderful way in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3 every uh, uh, Hebrew had to bring a lamb and verse 11 of same chapter 12 of the book of Exodus tells us that they have to slay the lamb so exactly at the same date uh, and that's the month of Nisan the lamb is slain uh, it's a ritual that takes place in the temple, but that day the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, which basically John the Baptist brings this unique way in John chapter 1 and verse 21, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This is a marvelous rendering of why he is there. Now I want you to understand, in all of the dimension of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, beginning with the revelation of of Jesus, beginning with John fainting when he sees the regality and the royalty of the king, closing with the king of kings and lord of lords that he comes in the white stallion and this time the final Armageddon the battle that basically is the climax and what is marvelous is he's seated uh, and majesty and tributes are given to him but what you find is also a lamb and uh, the a lamb that is slain that gives you a picture of one while all of the other thing is true you and i will get a picture of not only royalty and lord and king but you also get the beautiful dimension of him being a lamb why is it so important it's so important let me just explain to you a mother who basically had a scar on the right side, a beautiful woman, but she had a burned scar. And the son grew up and he was in school, but one thing he was embarrassed was ever pointing to his mother because he really just was ashamed of his mother. But one day the teacher said, you've got to have your mother for this, and he made all the excuses, and finally the teacher called the mother. To make the story simple, the mother went down, and the teacher was basically kind and gracious, but she, he said lovingly, she said to, mother, what happened to your face? And the mother explained and said, when my son was young, a little baby, he basically dropped a candle, and it sent the whole house into flame, and literally it would have burned him totally, and I went, and though the fire uh, brigade and others said, don't go, you'll kill yourself, I went in and covered him with my hands, and in doing so, I got scarred, but the child was saved. And suddenly the child had heard it, for the first time, when, it, when the mother was saying to the teacher, he just turned around with tears and hugged him and said, Mama, I will never forget the marks that ever forget the mark and what you have done for me. The picture I want to give you is when you go to heaven, you'll see Jesus is his regality, Jesus is his royalty, Jesus is the king. But there's one thing you and I will never forget when you see the nail-pierced hands, the spear that pierced his side, the thorns of uh, the crown that was upon his face, and you will always remember he paid the price where I am. It's only because the lamb that is slain. So you understand why this lamb is having a very importance, particularly in chapter 4. When you think about chapter, chapter, chapter 5, when you think about chapter 4, it's all about the throne. It's all about the surroundings of the throne, the rainbow, the thunder, the lightning, the voice, and the one that sits upon the throne. But when you come to chapter 5, suddenly it's shifting, and you are going to find it is to do with the throne, but it is to do so much with the lamb that was slain. 
that is standing. And that is a powerful picture. Now when you go down, you're going to find something very unique. Towards the end it says, which are the seven eyes, the seven horns, and the seven uh, eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, or the seven dimension of God. So the Holy Spirit is very close to the Lord Jesus in uh, what would be a triune sense in that circular movement. And you find the Father on the throne, in the midst is the Lamb of God, and the Holy Spirit in him, which is the seventh dimension, but he's one. And so when you look in chapter 9 of uh, chapter 12 of First uh, Corinthians, you're going to find the 12 uh, gifting, and again in Galatians, the nine are uh, the 12 fruits. But here the 12, the nine, seven dimension that I explained in, um, ex in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, the spirit of God, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit so much we don't have time to run through it all over again. But what is so important is you find in this beautiful picture the seven what you call horns, that speaks of power, that speaks of strength. Well, there's a lot of passage about it, but suffice to say, Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 17 talks about the strength of the horn of a bullock that is like the, like the horns of the unicorn that will chase away all of these things that are set for. That's Deuteronomy 33 and verse 17. But when you talk about the seven eyes, so much is there, we cannot cover it today. But remember, when you turn to uh, Zechariah, we don't need to go there, Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 9 talks about the seven lambs, which is the seven spirit. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6 talk about not by might, not by power, but by the spirit of God. Chapter 4 of Zechariah and verse 10 talks about this is the spirit, but by the spirit. And verse 10 goes on to say, that this is the spirit of Zerubbabel, the seven, they are the eyes of the Lord which run through and fro. Now that is alluded in the book of Revelation. When you turn to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4, that is how John the Beloved talks about it to the seven churches from him who is and which was and is to come and from the seven spirit which are before the throne. So you find the proximity of the Holy Spirit with the Lamb on the throne. What you find again is uh, chapter 4 and verse five, 5. Look at the way that John the Beloved sees it. He says, Yet out of the throne proceeds lightnings and thunder and voices, and there were seven lambs of fire burning before the throne. That is basically what Zechariah saw. Now he says they are the seven spirits of God. So now coming back to chapter 5 and verse 6, he's talking about the seven horns and the seven Spirits of God sent forth unto all the earth. The Spirit of God, the strength of God, the stronger man or the stronger power that is in the earth. And again, when the church is taken, he's up with the church uh, in heaven. His duty is to protect the church and to refine the church and to keep reminding the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want you to understand is when you turn to verse 7, it's a beautiful picture, again, you get of the right hand. So the book, the seal book, is in the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And this is a powerful expression, the right hand of God. You can find that all through the Bible. I did a study on the right hand of God. But I like the way it is mentioned in Psalm 98 and verse 1. It is uh, simply, is, uh, oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous thing. His right hand and his holy harm has gotten us the victory. That has given us the victory. Of course, God, the Holy One, doesn't have a right hand, but it's a picture of saying that even though he's a spirit, it's like a right hand that is so powerful. The fullest expression of Godhead is found in Jesus Christ with eyes and ears and hands and feet and so forth. And the heart we understand of the Father because we see the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you go into what would be the next in chapter uh, seven, uh, verse 7 of chapter 5, it, has, it says the right hand of the God that sat upon the throne. So here is the right hand and he takes took the book out. He's worthy. He alone is worthy to take the book. And now comes the fullest expression of the eschatology found from chapter 6 all the way. But if you want to learn about eschatology or anything to do with the future, many people spend a lot of time talking and interpreting the various symbols. 
But the emphasis is not so much of what takes in the future. The emphasis is what takes in the past, present, and future of one who is and who was and always will be. And that is the one that sits on the throne. You can never find anything of the future just on your own without recognizing and submitting to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb of God slain from the foundation and also the seven spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, when you turn into verse 8, is what is considered the first, the third song. The first song, uh, let me say, from chapter 4 to chapter 7, that is chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 7, there are what would be seven songs. Beautiful, there's a lot of songs, but it is a sense of what you call a theological, a theocentric, a transcendent, basically combined with the eminent. Uh, it is a sense of uh, what would be transparent. It's a sense of what would be very important in terms of uh, tributes and giving. All of this is very powerful. But let me say, the first two songs is attributed to the Father on the throne. The second songs that you find in chapter 5 is attributed to the lamb that is slain. And so the father is worshipped in chapter 4, verse 8, and verse 9. It's a song being sung. And then exactly the same way in chapter 5, and when you read verse, uh, we'll read in a moment, verse 9 and 10, and then 12, you're going to find the same. Uh, the son is uh, worshipped, and so almost the same words, worthy art thou. And then when you go to verse 13, you find that there are two for the Father, two songs for the Son in this chapter 4 and 5, and then one song again to the Father. But when you turn to chapter 7, you again have a song for the Father and the slain lamb that is slain, and ultimately ending with ultimate, the, the worship and uh, ode or song to the Father on the throne. So it is beautifully interwoven in a tense of what we would call Trinitarian uh, principle, in a sense that is called theocentric, in a sense that you call what would be um, importantly uh, thoroughly through worship. And I'll explain to you what through worship would be involving in a very transparent way, not roundabout, vague, or songs that is catchy or lyric, uh, catchy music, but very strong lyric. Lyrics are very important. So when you come to this part, I want you to understand, let me explain before I go to the seven songs, or particularly the five songs, if we have time, go to the seven songs from chapter seven. But before I do that, I want you to look into chapter five of the book of Revelation and verse one, they sang a new song. Uh, chapter 5 and verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book. This is attributed to the Lamb of God in the same similar strain and vein that they had done that in chapter 4 to the one that sits Almighty God, which is our Father in heaven. It is almost the same way, not only sung to the Son, but also the kneel down in their worship. And so I want you to understand this very important. Now, I do understand in the evangelical and in the Pentecostal world, there's a lot of songs and lyric about the Son in the absence of the Father. And there must not be an absence of the Son nor of the Father because it's very important. So obviously, it's very important about the Father. Because when you look at the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, in John chapter 4, verse 23, he tells us the Father seeks those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. So the worship of the Father in spirit and in truth. Again, when you go into passages in Luke chapter 4 and verse 8, Satan said, bow down and worship me and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall only worship the Lord God and him only you would serve. Now, when you come down to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12, alluding to the psalm, it says he will, uh, uh, he will um, I think it is uh, Jesus Christ, the author, I think Hebrews, which way it is, um, he, I will come to that. It talks about verse 12. Uh, it says, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise to you, Father. 
Now, while in the flesh, Jesus was attributing every direction he could get to Almighty God. Now, I want you to realize people make a big deal about you have to only address God as Yahweh. That is his name. He's also known by Adonai, just to give so that the misuse of the word Yahweh is not mentioned. But when you look in the Aramaic sense of the language that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke, there was no spoken word of Yahweh. In fact, the Greek word simply talks about Theo or Creo. So when you say, Lord have mercy, it's Creo Laiso. And so it is very, um, what is called um, Greek, Aramaic thought. And the people of those days didn't use the word uh, basically in the thought of the Hebrew Yahweh. So people may think, oh my God. But what you find is equivalent of the Greek word. So some people say, you have to say Yeshua, not Jesus. Whichever way you know, I want you to understand the Father knows exactly what we are talking about. The devil knows who we are talking about. And I want you to realize you pronounce my name, Sebastian, 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 I still know who you're talking about, okay? So in the end of the day, I'll th I hope you do the right pronunciation, but that being said, when you mention my name and you look to me, I understand you're talking to me. But I want you to realize a very important thing here. So uh, when you think about the song, there are many aspects of songs that you find in the Bible. There's a plenty of songs. Uh, in fact, when the redemption story comes in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 1, the people begin to worship the Lord and this is the song of the rider and the horse has fallen and it becomes a triumphant song and Miriam takes the tremble and dances with the song. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 and verse 19 uh, filled with the Spirit, verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Those are important. And when you go into uh, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 3, talking about 144,000, they sing a song, a new song, before the uh, throne and before the four beasts. And so this is basically from these gentlemen, uh, the 144 saints, um, or what would be the witnesses in the tribulation time. But did you know that there is the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb? And when you turn to chapter 15 and verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the servant of, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true. And so you're using a Greek expression equivalent to Yahweh, but not in that exact term. And just and through are your ways, thou king of saints. And this is an attribute to the Father. But that being said, I want you to understand, not everything is in songs. Uh, many times in the Christian circle, we think everything is about praise. Now, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11, the three wise men knelt down and they offered. And this is a very important heaven. If you do not know what is to offer, here on earth, you would basically be totally ignorant when it comes to heaven because offering is mentioned. And I want you to understand as priests and kings, particularly as kings, and we know it's uh, beyond global. It is what of all creation. And you bring offerings that is meant only for the one that sits on the throne and to the Lamb of God. We get the fullest opportunities and expression to do that in heaven. And that is called offering. You find that in the book of Revelation. So not simply songs. But there's also what is, would be called can I put it this way, praise and thanksgiving, not simply in songs. I know we come from the old church, and because of the ritualistic, we avoided everything, and so we went one track way. But if you realize the chant, uh, they do that in the church called Gregorian chant, but the litany of the old a church was not bad. It is very scriptural, for example. That's what they would do, not all singing. O Lord, how great Thou art, great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. That is heavenly. You find that expression in heaven, and that is praise and worship, not sung, but uttered. That is enchanting, that is spoken, and that is very much a praise, as important as songs. 
then you have what would be a wonderful way, not only of offering, but also in the sense of what would be triumphant, joyful noise. And there's a whole shouting noise and trumpet and orchestra in heaven. And then there's silence. Excuse me, we love in the Pentecostal church all the noise and the racket. But did you know, let all the earth be silent. In heaven, there's a pause. And it's not a pause like interval, now you can go in and have your cup of coffee and, and eat some peanuts. No, a pause to say silence. We're so afraid of silence that even people get hold and alone, they put on the radio and television even though they're not watching or listening to the radio because they're frightened to be alone. But just because meditation uh, People tend to think it's from East. No, it is from the East. It comes biblical. It comes from the Hebrew thought. And that silence before God is praise and worship as much as chanting uh, in terms of uttering or in terms of singing. They are very important as well. So there are many, many ways in which we can worship God. We can worship God triumphantly. We can worship God in silence. But then there's an aspect of what would be returning to God the favors. And this is basically returning back and in sense of what you call, particularly in the black churches, you have the church, uh, the choir singing and the congregation saying back, hallelujah, praise the Lord, or the preacher saying, and people getting up and say, hallelujah, that's right, pastor. It's very much in the biblical of uh, basically returning back and saying, amen, amen. So when you look at the four uh, living creatures, they say holy, 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 three times, very important. And then the 24 herders at the chant fall down and cast their crowns, and then all the angels begin to sing. So they return holy, 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 and there's a marvelous sense of order, decency, not chaos, not a noisy nonsense, but it all brings a semblance of harmony and worship and praise that in the silence or whether in the tributes or whether in all of this, this is basically an aspect of true worship, not just one-sided. But that being said, there's so much of songs even in the book of Revelation. So let's just go to chapter 4 and verse 8. This is to the, uh, to the Father eternal who sits on the throne. And it says, uh, they rest not day and night. And what do they do? They say, holy, 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 Lord, God Almighty, and that is Yahweh, and that would be Theo, that would be Creo. And understand this, the word is used in uh, a Greek of the Lord Jesus Christ too, uh, Theo as well. So when you look at it, you're talking here about God the Father, which is basically the Father God, who is God Almighty. And to him, they say, holy, holy, holy. And this is the fullest expression of what you can explain about God Almighty that comes from the four living creatures closest to God, giving that anthemony of praise and worship. Says, which was and is and is to come, simply I am that I am. Now, when you go into the next worship, it is found in verse 11, to the Father. And again, listen to what says, thou art worthy, that is God, to receive, number one, glory, honor, power, for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure. That is song number two, to the Father. The first two to the Father. When you turn to chapter five, and when you turn to verse nine, and 10, this is to the Lamb of God. So if you were to go to verse 8, it basically prepares when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and 20 uh, elders fell down before the Lamb. Now listen to this. They are bringing in musical instruments and golden veils. So not only the picturesque way of what you see, but what you hear and what you smell. So it is a high dimension praise with seeing the effect of hearing, the effect of smell, all of them which basically combine with the prayers of the saints. So what exactly are the praises now to the Lamb of God, the worst lane? Now verse 9, this is attributed to the Lamb. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy, exactly the same words as to God Almighty, to take the book to open the seas thereof, thou were slain, 
and has redeemed us. So while you find creation of Almighty Father and sustenance in chapter 4, redemption, the lamb that was slain is for our redemption. We'll always remember that. And redeemed us to God. And out of your blood, that's how he has, out of every kindred and tongue, people and nation, not one. Israel, not one America, but all nation, all tribe, per se, without class, without all of the color or nationalities or culture. Now what you go into, verse 10 and 11 gives you a pause. Listen to what verse 10 says. And has made us unto, and that is what he has done, made us priests and kings, like Revelation 1.6 says, he has made us priests and kings. I'll tell you, we come into this now, towards the end, and join with the four living creatures, with the 24 elders, and with the angelic beings, and we blend our voices uniquely to do with salvation, which they cannot so much, and then we have a special song. But now listen to the second song in 11 and 12. Verse 11, I beheld and I heard the voice. Now listen to what it says. This is the Lamb round about their throne and the beast and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands upon thousands. That's angelic being. You cannot count them. And what are they saying? This is attributed, the second song, to the Lamb. Verse 12 saying with a loud voice, triumphantly, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power. Seven things, and I want you to understand, comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, and seven things we bring back to Him, attribute to Him. Number one, power. All power is given to Him. Riches or wealth. And I'm not talking about financial alone. I'm talking about all-round prosperity because the prosperity thinkers, preachers talk only about money and bank and, and I'm talking about all-round, including finance, but that is the least. The most important is your spiritual wealth in Christ and everything else with emotion and intellect. And of course, all-around in your job and everywhere in the family and so forth. I believe in Abraham's blessing in your blessing in your going out, blessing in your coming, it comes because of the through the Lord Jesus Christ. And wisdom, uh, and that comes from the Lord, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing, all of these seven attributes to the Lord Jesus. So, so they're attributing it to the Lamb that was slain. Now, what I want you to understand is now in the fifth song is a combination to the Father and the Lamb that was slain. These are all songs I'm talking about. So when you go to verse 13, look at what it says, the fifth one. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him, number one, that sits upon the throne, and to the Lamb forever and forever. That's the fifth song. Now, hearing this, there is a response from all of the angelic being, and that is the response you find in verse 14. They say, Amen. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and forever. And so the worship is almost the same as in chapter 4 as is in chapter 5. But I want to just run through chapter 7 to give you an expression of what would be the sixth and the seventh. The sixth, uh, the sixth is attribute to Father and the, and the Lamb of God. And so you find this in verse 9 of chapter 7. After this I bear, now this is where we come in. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number. Look what it says, like it says earlier, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And what are they saying? Their song is unique. Their song is singular. Their song is not like with all of the angelic. They don't know what salvation is. And their song is found in verse 10. 
saying with a loud voice, is triumphant, it's not silent, salvation to our God which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. There's a lot of worship going on in heaven. So what happens in verse 11, you find this, and all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped, not G-O-D-S, God. And so this is amazing when you look at that. Now, I want you to understand verse, uh, verse 12 is now a song attributed to the Father and the Lamb, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, and this is basically to, to God the Father, uh, and honor and power be unto our God forever and forever. Now, what I want you to realize is very importantly that, that we must learn the theology of this worship. What is true uh, worship? The Lord Jesus Christ said, the Father seeks those who worship him that will do things not outwardly manifestation, that comes out when it comes from the Spirit. You can do all dance without even your spirit moving. It begins in your spirit. If it didn't begin in your spirit, all you're doing is a nice performance. It's not a worship. Many a times, our worship is performance, not so much from our heart. And many a times, the performance as a fee, as a price, and this is like a big business all across the West, and now it's spreading all over the world as well. It's an anathema to the Lord. But understand this, worship is in the Spirit. You're not thinking about what you gain, it's what you can give to God. That is the primary purpose of worship. And then when you're excited and exuberant about it, it begins to manifest in your intellect, in your emotion, you begin to weep, and then your body begins to move. All of that part beginning in the Spirit, soul, body. But I want you to understand, number one, true worship is theological, meaning it is scriptural. And I just talked to you what scriptural is. So there is an emphasis in the book of Revelation, and this is what we must learn. And simply because some church jumps out and runs all over the ceiling and says, that's praise, and the Spirit of God made me do it, crazy stuff, that's not the Holy Spirit, and we must recognize that. Number two, I want you to understand, it is transparent, simply meaning you know what the praise is. Uh, sometimes some praise is like a nightclub. So much loud drum, noise, beat, song, they're swinging. And you turn to the person and say, what are they saying? I don't know. So what are you dancing for? You're dancing to the beat or are you dancing the lyric? Lyric is important. This is theological. I don't want to move until I know what they're saying. Sometimes I would turn to Pastor Hans and say, I didn't get the language, what were they saying? And he says, oh my God, that's so beautiful. Now I'm in the praise because I understood the lyric. Many a times in the Western world, it's the music, it's the beat, it's the shout, it's all of the background, the side dish at the expense of the main dish. The main dish is the lyric. The words are very meaningful. It's transparent. But not only through worship, T must be theological. Through worship must be transparent. Through worship must be transforming. In other words, you are transformed by the experience. Oh, look, I got goosebumps. That's not what it is. You can go to a nightclub and get double-time goosebumps. But what it means is your spirit is touched. You have a sense of worship of the Father, like Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. You sense what Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has done for you. Yes, you'll have tears. Yes, you'll be excited. Yes, there is emotion out. Yes, there is a moving of the hands and clapping of the hands. But it's because it's transforming. It's not translucent. It is very transparent. There's something else I want you to understand. It is a balance between T, the transcendent God, who is way beyond our understanding, without losing his distinctness or who he is, holy, righteous, merciful, gracious, justice, 
and then coming to God, imminent through Jesus Christ, we know God in a personal way. So there's a balance between the transcendent God and the imminent God that is the Lamb that is slain for us. So it's very important. There's something else that we must understand. It is very triumphant, simply meaning it's loud and worship that we're not ashamed to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Not simply a loud noise, a joyful noise of triumphant, but also is tranquil, meaning we should not be afraid of let it go low-key and just keep it down in total silence and just think about it. Think about it. And some people will be just lifting their hands and saying not a word. Believe you me, they have gone to the presence of God. They have gone in the spirit, just like songs. They are in the spirit, mood, and that is very powerful. True worship is tributes to God. Tribute to God simply means you learned how to give tithes, you learned how to give offering. In heaven, you and I will get opportunity as kings. Scour out the universe of all creation and find the very best thing. It's like a son comes to the father and says, you've done so much, I can never repay you, but look what I got for you today. I'm not talking about flowers and roses, but I'm talking about much more than that. Laying, like as it were, the crown, casting it before the father's feet and before the lamb. The opportunities we will have is unbelievable, but you wouldn't know if you never learn to give tithes or offering. You're not giving to a church, you're not giving a man, you're learning to give to God. In heaven, tributes are very important. And every time you see that, it's marvelous way of celebrating. People say, it's my birthday. People say, I got a house and I want to celebrate. In heaven, we have a mansion. In heaven, we don't need a car, but in heaven, we are celebrating for many things. We don't know all of it, but it's a grand celebration. What do you mean celebration? Simply means the fatted cow. The Lord Jesus Christ talked about I don't mean that in that sense. Jesus is using a human word. But the celebration in heaven is nothing like you have ever seen before. As I close, let me just say this. A very important. You're going to find the worship that is to the Father. It's heavenly. It is before the throne it is confidently and boldly coming, what Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 says, to the throne room of grace without afraid because of what Jesus Christ has done and because he's made the way, he's the door. There's something else I want you to understand. It is something called living between the resurrection, ascension, and his coming. And we're not living like paupers. We're not living like losers. We're living in the midst of resurrection ascension to his second coming, not as defeated, but as victorious. How could I express it a better way than the movie that was released called Unbroken that was actually directed by Julie, Julina, whatever her name is, she's a famous actress. But actually the true life story of uh, an American who was caught in the prisoner of war in Japan. His name is Louis Selvi uh, Zambani. Sambrini, a wonderful man. He was in prison for 27 months in Japan. They treated him badly. They spat on him, making what, 16 hours, just getting a little, um, basically, some soup from the sea and then uh, hardly a little rice. 16 hours every day working for nothing, carrying big rocks, and it was excruciating, it was painful, and then they would call him at any times of the day, pelt him, beat him, knock him down, and it is so sad. His story is told in a marvelous way. Much later, he comes to know the Lord in a marvelous way and becomes a missionary, but he went through such hard things that happened to him, and then in 1945 of September 5th, Deliverance Day, basically the Americans came in and uh, basically rescued him. Now things changed. Uh, he was never taken home right away. 
another prisoners of war. They were basically no more prisoners of war, but they were in this prison. They were no more prisoners. But what happened is it was a reversal. Without having to basically lord it over them, they realized one thing very important. There were no more servants. They were more slaves. On the contrary, these folks who had enslaved them were actually in reality in this prisoner of camp, their slaves. They learned how not to treat them the way they were treated, but rather to show that even though they are in command, they were not heartless like they were. And what happened was not living like slaves, nor even like showing themselves with such a style and pompous living, but in that way, and yet having that status of a free man, not conquered, but literally in charge, they were in command. And the people who once were in command realized what truth was and what reality was, unlike them. What I mean to say is we live in a world in which we are being persecuted, and yet we are not slaves. We live in a world where we are cheated on, but yet we are not cheating. We live in a world where people abuse and make, basically take advantage of us, and what we're not at taking advantage. And yet we are knowing one thing, that we are still in charge because the throne has an occupant, and God Almighty is occupying the throne. And we can be all that we are because the Lamb came down. God sent one, and he became like one of us, but he became one who basically was the most harmless creature and literally took our sin. We're always reminded, living in the aftermath of the resurrection and ascension to before Jesus Christ comes as Lord and King, riding that white stallion. And when he comes, the world doesn't know yet, but when he comes, we shall be changed. In a twinkling of an eye, people will never realize you have red carpets to walk in in heaven. People will never realize you have a throne. People never realize you have a mansion. People never realize you are richer than the richest billionaires of this earth. But that day will come when in a twinkling of an eye we shall put on immortality and the corruption will be moving into incorruption and we shall forever be with the Lord. Forever. Doing what? Number one, we are priests. That is the most important. Because of the slave. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. And what it says is, through his blood, he has made us kings and priests unto his father to, be, to him be glory and dominion. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10, what has he made us? He has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. So this is most important, our priestly duty, but don't ever forget. People not, may not realize who you are, your kings and princes, not in this puny world that will come to an end, but long after this world is over, you will know who you are. In that sense, don't be pompous. Don't be extravagant. Don't live like the prosperity preachers, but you are a king and a queen. The world doesn't know. And one day, they will recognize who you are. They will recognize your worth. And I'm going to say this one more. It's worth living for God. Knowing he's on the throne, your reward will not come from the United States government. It won't come from the president. It won't come from the United Nations. Your reward comes from God. I know what a great thing is to have a medal. You fought for it. It's a glorious thing. Your name is called but in the array of trillions and trillions, you cannot talk about it, zillions and whatever words you use, your name will be called and God says, faithful and chosen. And to you, I give you the crown of life. To you, I give you the reward. It's worth it all. Living here on earth, in the midst of everything, 
knowing that not only we have a God who is transcendent God, he is all that you want to say you, that you can talk about God, holy, everlasting, eternal, immortal, but because of Jesus Christ, we know him as our father and we can relate to God like no one because we're children of God. We have an example to follow. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you, Father, for the Lamb. Let me just say this. In this passage, we talk about the seven blessings. And let me just say this again. In chapter 4, we read about these, uh, the amazing aspect of the blessings that come from him. And to him be glory. In chapter 5, I've talked about, and may I pray this prayer for you today. In, I think it was verse 11 or verse, uh, yes, verse 12. And I'm just going to pray this prayer for you. And I want you to do something. Give it back to God. So I want you to know this. From him comes power. The Holy Spirit powers on you. Give him the power. From him comes wealth in every aspect of your life. Give it back to him. From him comes wisdom. If you don't have wisdom, seek wisdom. He will give you wisdom. From him comes strength. Give it back. So with a loud voice we say, Worthy are you, O Lamb, for you were slain and you will receive. You have given to us. We give it back to you. To you we give honor because you give us honor. And to you we glory because you have covered us with glory. And to you we give blessing because you have blessed us. If that's what you are, I want to stand and I'm praying this prayer for you. First, Father, I want to thank you. Put this up so others can read that. Father, I just pray that you are worthy, O Lamb, that was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing. And I pray this for your people this morning that they would receive, O oh God, the power from on high. They would receive, O oh God, riches and wealth from your hand, recognizing that spiritual wealth is far greater than everything else, but that's not discounting all the other riches that you give in terms of intellect, in terms of emotion, in terms of every aspect of our physical and even material. I pray wisdom, O oh God, that comes from you, that we'd be pleased to give it to you, Strength, O oh God, even in our weakness, that you become our strength. And honor, because honor is due to you, and you will honor your people that honors you. And glory, O oh God, that you would cover your people with the glory that you had before the world with your Father. And for, Father, I just pray that blessing that comes from Jesus, that would be upon your people. The Lord bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that you've been encouraged by the word of the Lord. To learn more, please visit our website, highlandny.org, or our Facebook page, Highland Church, New York. Until next time, may God richly bless you.